All right, good morning, Journey. It's a blessing uh, to be back here. I've, I've been blessed to preach here this three years in a row. Uh, I've come back every summer uh, to visit. And um, as Jerry said, my name is John Michael Becker. I'm the son of uh, Pete and Vicki Becker. I grew up in this church, went to Lee High School, uh, graduated from there in 2000, then went to Virginia Tech and studied engineering there. And uh, after graduating uh, in 2005, after a long time of praying and fasting, uh, it was a very interesting process how, how God guided me uh, and my parents and the elders of this church. Uh, I was sent to South Korea, uh, Seoul, to live in Jeon Christian Children's Home. And uh, Pastor Han Che here, his brother, uh, Pastor Yoon Gwan Che in, in Seoul, Korea, has an orphanage there and uh, invited me to come out there. So I lived in the orphanage and taught English. I lived in the home for three years, was a full-time missionary, and then got my own apartment right outside the home. And I, I continue to serve there uh, to this day during the week, teaching the kids English and basketball and, and just spending time with them. Uh, and I also oversee a few different other ministries, and I'll share about those uh, in a moment. In August 2011, I married my better half, uh, my wife Sky Becker, who's right over here. And uh, ministry has gotten so much better uh, since then as, as we've been serving together. Life has gotten so much better. Two years ago, I, I shared here at The Journey about Oak Tree Project, which is a scholarship and mentoring program uh, that I founded in 2013 for the orphans. And in Korea, if you are an orphan, you are cared for by the state, by the social welfare system, until you graduate from high school. And in Korea, once you graduate from high school, you are deemed an adult and you are deemed to be able to take care of yourself. And so the homes release the kids. They have to move out within a week of graduating. And then they're completely on their own. And for these kids, having previously had their clothes washed, food given to them, a bed to sleep on, the transition is very difficult. And for those that go to college, it's extremely difficult because they not only have to pay for their living needs, but also for their tuition. And so we saw their need for financial support, and we also saw their need for emotional support. And so we set up this mentoring program where they get living needs uh, given to them through the scholarship and a mentor who calls them once a week and meets with them once a month to make sure that they're doing well, to pray for them, and to encourage them. So I'll show you the logo of Oak Tree Project. Uh, the logo, the, what it represents is that's a cloud at the bottom. And our desire is not to rescue these kids from the storm, but rather for them to rise up through the storm, for them to get rooted in the storms of life and rise up as oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, that they might be an example to all the other kids in the homes. And so we started in 2013 with four students. We've gradually grown over the years. I'll show you a picture from our most recent quarterly meeting. Uh, we now have 18 students on scholarship with 18 mentors committed to them. And we want to see this continue to grow. Whenever we visit orphanages and share about Oak Tree Project, they get so excited because they've never heard of a program like this, where not only is there a scholarship given, but there's also a mentor. And for these students, they've opened up over the years. Uh, they've never had someone committed to them. And now they're opening up about deep scars, deep issues, things that they've never shared before. And we're seeing God break through in their lives. So that's a brief update on Oak Tree Project. I'm going to share a little bit more about another ministry that I direct. Uh, this is Jerusalem Ministry. And this is an NGO that started in 2006, right after I arrived in Korea, about five months after I arrived. I started this ministry where we train volunteers to go into the homes 
So Oak Tree Project's aftercare Jerusalem ministry is them currently in the home and to serve as tutors, teaching the kids. In 2007, we started Christmas Secret Angel for the kids. We've been doing that every year. And then soccer camp in 2008, every summer, a three-day soccer camp. And in 2009, a winter arts and crafts camp. We continue to do that for the kids. We've come a long way over all these years. I've been in Korea now over 10 years. And uh, to show you how far we've come, here's a picture of our first soccer camp, 2008. It's back when we had very little money and very little experience, didn't know what we were doing. And uh, we could only afford pennies for the kids, so that's Team Sharks. I don't think there's any soccer team called Sharks, uh, but that's what they were called. And this was the winning team. Uh, They won the championship. So this picture was taken right after they won the championship with their three volunteers. And you can see one kid in the middle with a big grin, and then two kids kind of with half grins. And then everyone else just kind of staring, too cool for school. Some of them are looking away. That's after winning the championship on day three. Fast forward to our our most recent camp. This is a picture of one of the teams on day one. And you can see we've grown in number, grown in funding. The location is a lot better. And we got a lot more volunteers and a lot more smiles. If you look at that picture, nearly every single kid is smiling. And they've only been at the camp for a few hours. Such a difference. Such a difference. And I'm going to share about how that difference happened uh, in a moment. But first, I'm going to give you a little bit more visual uh, on the camp. So I'm going to show a, a brief video a recap of our last soccer camp. So you saw a lot of smiles uh, in that video, and that was from uh, all three days. And it's just such a difference in these camps. As, as I showed you that picture, that 2008 camp, our first one, it wasn't until the last day that we saw some kids smile. You see, when the kids come, they're filled with insecurity and fear. They're meeting boys from other children's homes, and and they're intimidated, and they're scared. And so some of them will curse to try and be cool. Uh, Some will give attitude. Others just aren't that interested in soccer, and so they'll go wander and play with the grass. And, and, um, you know, we just work, and we we love the kids, and, and we do our best. And by the last day, you'd see a little bit of a smile. And after that camp, we actually thought, well, the kids didn't really enjoy it. They, they gave us a really hard time. I don't think it's worth the trouble. But the day after the camp, the kids at my children's home came up to me, and they're like, we want another camp. Like, I wish we could do that every day. I said, why didn't you show it on your face during the camp? You know, why, why weren't you smiling? And, uh, but they admitted it, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and they were really blessed by the camp. And so 2009, we, we did the camp again, and, and again, it was really hard. Uh, we had different kids with attitude problems and things, and by the last day, we were seeing more smiles. And so that was, that was a joy. But with every year, the smiles have increased, and, and they've come more quickly with every year. After a couple of years, day two, we're seeing smiles. Yay! You know, God's love is breaking through, and soon day one. To the point where this past camp, I was just amazed that kids who had never even been at the camp, the moment they arrived, they were already smiling. They had already, they had just met the escort and they were kind of afraid and coming over, but through the love of the escort and through those that had also been at the camp that they would see such joy. And I'll give you just a few pictures to to show that joy. This is a boy arriving for the first time. You can see him running up there, kids coming up the steps, excited, uh, you know, anticipating another boy Just a big grin. This is such a difference from 2008 and 2009 and even 2010 where it would take so much time before we would see them feel safe enough to be themselves and, and to be silly and to smile like you saw in that video. So what was the difference? What changed over all those years? 
Now, I mean, there were some basic factors that, that were very obvious. One, we got more funding, so they got, you know, nicer uniforms. Two, better location. The first few camps were just on dirt fields, and now we're, we're on artificial turf. And then three, experience. We, we learned how to run the camp a bit better. But I have seen other groups with a lot of experience and a lot of money and, and great locations have camps for these kids from the orphanage, and they act just like they did at our previous camps. They come, and they're checked out, and they're, they're scared, they're, they're fearful, they don't connect with the people at those camps. But at our camps, there's a difference. And if I ask my kids, boys, you know, during the year, what was your highlight of the year? They will all say soccer camp. I ask the girls, what was the highlight of the year? Arts and crafts camp. The highlight of the year for them was this camp, these camps. And the difference is what I want to preach about today, what has made the difference over these years. The difference is it's the power of God's presence. It's the power of God's presence. And uh, if you're taking notes today, the title of my sermon is The Power of Presence. And I'm going to come back to these kids in a moment. But uh, first I want to share from the word of where we see the power of God's presence in the Bible. How important his presence is. So I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 18. Now the premise of Exodus 18 is Moses, uh, the prince of Egypt. If you guys have seen that cartoon. He has led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He went to Pharaoh, let my people free. He, he takes them out. And, and now he's got all these people. Just a multitude of people that he's leading, not just out of slavery, but out of being spiritual orphans. You see, all these people, while they lived in Egypt, they didn't know God. They had no law. They had no rules. They didn't know right from wrong. And so Moses is leading them out, and he's having to counsel them, teach them what's right, solve their differences. And this is what we read about in Exodus 18, verse 13 through 18. I'll have it up here as well for you. Says the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father in law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father in law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now this is a picture, sadly, of a lot of churches today. A lot of churches today, you have a lot of spiritual orphans. You have a lot of people that are broken that are struggling, strife in marriage, strife with their parents, strife with their workplace, uh, just struggles with habitual sin and failure and, and financial concerns and all these things. And in many churches, what happens is that these people with these different issues will seek for help and they'll come to the pastor. And so the pastor from morning until evening will be counseling people, encouraging them, Showing them word, you know, show, showing them scripture in the Bible, praying for them, encouraging them. And sadly, a number of people in the church are what we call vampire Christians. Where they come, I'm a pastor myself in, in, in Korea. They'll come and, and they'll suck your blood. They'll, they'll ask all the love that you have and you'll counsel them and encourage them. And they'll just, well, maybe, oh, no. And you just pour out as much as you can and they go away unchanged. Still dead. Still vampires. 
And they're just crying out, won't you live? Won't you just receive and live? It's, counseling is good, but counseling doesn't change the heart. Laws are good, but laws don't change the heart. They might box a person in, they might help a person kind of understand, but in the end, sinful nature has to be changed. In the end, it has to be God. And so Moses, his father-in-law Jethro, gives him some good worldly advice. And he says, look, this burden, this counseling is too much for you. Get some other people, some other people in, in charge, and have them also take care of people in counsel. And so it's kind of like spreading the work. And that is wisdom, and, and that is good, but that is still not the answer. You can have 100 counselors for one person, but if their heart refuses to change, it doesn't matter how much you pour into them. So Moses knew that wasn't the full answer. And so in the next chapter, in Exodus 19, he walks up Mount Sinai to be with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And I imagine he's thinking, okay, God, you've given me all these people with all these issues. I need wisdom. I need a specific word from you, a word that will change their hearts and and will make them right. And he goes up to God, and God first starts with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And he gives them laws in Exodus 21 and, and 22. You will live by this. You shall not do this. You shall do this. You shall not do this. And Moses is thinking, okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. But in the end, the law is not the answer. The law creates a framework, okay, that you're meant to live under. But if the heart's not there, you're still going to keep breaking it. The sinful nature is just going to keep breaking it. And so Moses knew the law was not the answer. And he's waiting, God, what's the answer? What's the answer? And then God's word started to become a little strange. God transitioned from speaking about the law to speaking about interior design. And he said, now Moses, I want a table, these dimensions, and this type of wood. And we're going to put bread on it. And I want a lampstand, these dimensions, and and this type of wood. And we're going to put it in in this area, and we're going to put a lamp on it. And this is the way I want the lamp to be with these these number of candles on it. And I want some curtains, and they got to be purple. Purple curtains is what I want. You can imagine Moses thinking, God, I need an answer for God's people. I I need a word to speak into them. I don't need an Ikea shopping list. But God knew better. God knew the answer wasn't some counseling or some word or, or some law. The answer was his presence. And he said, I want you to make this tabernacle and this tent of meeting. And we're going to put it up right in the middle of all the people. And my presence is going to come down. And my people will see me and know me and know my presence. God knew the answer was his presence. This is the same in the New Testament as well. Jesus came as a baby and he grew up as a child and into a man. He worked as a carpenter. But then when he was about 30 years old, he started his teaching ministry. For three years he taught And he went about the land, healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons, and teaching love, and teaching the right way. And he had his 12 disciples, and he poured into them, and he taught them, and showed them how to live as a godly man, how to live a righteous life. But at the end of the three years, was the world changed? No. Were his disciples changed? No. In fact, we we read in in the book of John that that at the end, he confesses, and he says, my I'm at a point of sorrow to the place of death. And he begins to share about how someone's going to betray him, okay, and and hand him over, and he's going to be crucified. 
And his disciples are aghast, and they're, oh, who's going to do it? And, and they're arguing, oh, you know, who's not me? Surely not me. And then their argument turns to, who's the greatest? It's a bizarre turn. First, they're saying, no, no, you know, I'm not going to betray Jesus. Well, I'm the greatest, so obviously I won't. Well, no, no, I'm the greatest. I, you know, did you see those healings? They're totally missing what Jesus had taught them for three years, that the least among you is the greatest. And then that same night, one of Jesus' closest 12 betrays him. And then his other, one of his closest inner three, Peter, denies him three times. And all of them flee. And if I was Jesus, I would think, what a waste of my life. The people that I've been closest with have not been changed. But Jesus was not discouraged because he knew the true answer. It wasn't teaching. It wasn't even being a role model. And he spoke of that answer in John chapters 14, 15, and 16 before he went to the garden. And he told the disciples, I know you're filled with fear right now, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you, and then you'll have peace, you'll have strength. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even when Jesus was resurrected, their faith was, was, was weak and it was kind of growing. And Jesus said, look, you guys are going to change the world. And you will go and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But first, I need you to wait in Jerusalem for my presence. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything until you get my presence. So the disciples were there. And in Acts 2, we read about Pentecost. The Holy Spirit being poured out. And when the presence of God hit them, their hearts were changed. And Peter, that same man that denied Jesus three times, gets up and speaks boldly to thousands. And thousands are saved. And we see the church begin to take over during that time frame. It's his presence that changes us. It's his presence that makes all things new. I knew a pastor and and uh, one of his ways of counseling was if someone came to him with an issue, he would set up a counseling session for them the following week. Oh, you're having troubles with your marriage. Oh, you need guidance for your life. Oh, you need this. Okay, I will meet with you next week. But before we meet, they had a prayer room at his church. He said, you need to go into the prayer room for three hours. Just go spend three hours in the prayer room. And he would find most of the time people wouldn't show up for the counseling session. And when he'd go and ask them, you know, well, well why didn't you come? They would say, well, I got all my answers when I was in the prayer room. When I was in the presence of God. His presence is the answer. It's his presence that changes us. It's his presence that heals us of our sinful nature. It's his presence that gives us such a joy that we would rather have him than the sin. That we'd rather have his love than anything else that we were messing around with. It's his presence that enables us to see people for who they truly are. Made in God's image and no longer fight with them. No longer be offended by them or bitter at them. It's his presence that changes us. And I'm going to illustrate this by a picture of the Grand Canyon. I think many of you have, have been to the Grand Canyon. You've at least seen it. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's beautiful. Just looking out, it's inspiring. People travel from all around the world to see this rock. Okay, to see this, this valley and that river going through it. And you can see a man sitting there at, at the bottom of that picture on a ledge on a rock. And he's looking out. And you can probably imagine what he's thinking. Wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And he's being inspired by the Grand Canyon. And this Grand Canyon is a picture of us when we are filled with the presence of God. You see, we are each fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in his image. We are precious and honored in his sight. We are the apple of his eye. 
We are beautiful. And when God's presence is working through us, we are more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. And, and uh, I got a picture of this just a couple weeks ago. My uh, younger sister, Laura, she adopted a baby, uh, Chloe May. And uh, she's now two months. Two weeks ago, I was going through the local giant with my wife. And I was carrying Chloe. And people were smiling at me like never before. People were so happy to see me. They were opening the door for me. They were just so sweet to me because they saw Chloe. They saw the baby. Oh, in all her innocence, in all her beauty, just pure, the way God made us to be. She hadn't become a terrible two yet, where suddenly it's like, oh, you know, get that crying child out of here. No, she's still innocent, but you know, God makes all things new. We're not meant to lose that beauty, but it's actually when God works through us, that his presence is working through us, we shine brighter than any star. We bring inspiration to the world around us. But you know what happens when his presence isn't working through us? When his light is not shining? Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon at night on a, on a cloudy night when there's no stars or no moon in the sky? This is what it looks like. Imagine sitting on that ledge. There it is. <laughs> Suddenly the Grand Canyon becomes a very dangerous and scary place. You don't even want to take a step because you're worried you're going to get hurt or you might even die. That's how it is in dealing with people without God's presence. Filled with anger, offense, shame, fear, habitual sin, different struggles, and, and just, just no love within us. That's a picture of what we are without the presence of God. We can have all the laws and all the counseling and all the different mentors in our lives. But if we don't have God's presence, we're a dangerous person to be around. Guys, we're meant to be a Grand Canyon. We're meant to shine God's light we're meant to reveal God to this generation. We need his presence. Two of my favorite verses in the Bible are John 15, verse 4 and 5. And I'll read it to you. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from my presence, you're just darkness. But if you abide in me, I will light you up and the world will be blessed by you. The world will see your beauty, my beauty in you, and they will be drawn to me. It's his presence that brings life. So how do we abide in him? It's seeking relationship. It's not religion. When you pray, it's not just going through a list, but not connecting with God. It's praying and saying, God, I need your presence. I want to feel you. I want to know you. You died for me that I might be called your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. And I want to have this relationship. I want to know your presence. It's reading the word, not as a textbook, not as, oh, give me this day, my daily bread. Let me read it. Okay, I'm done. But saying, God, I want to know you through this. This is your spoken word to me. I want to hear your voice. I want to feel your presence. It's coming together as a church. And not just showing up and worshiping and going home, but connecting with each other and singing with one voice. You see, we are each temples of the Holy Spirit. His presence is within us. And when we come together, His presence is amplified. It gets so much stronger, so much more powerful. But we have to be cognizant of this. We have to be aware. We have to be intentional. Really seeking Him. Wanting Him. When His presence comes in, those habitual sins, those character flaws, they start to get healed. 
It's no longer needing laws and boundaries and, and all this accountability and, and you know, all these different things that's really going to heal us. It's, the Bible says in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord of hosts. It's his presence that makes all things new, that truly changes us. As we seek him, we're changed, and then we get a genuine love to change those around us, to speak into them, to care for them. Our words have weight because they're the words of God. It's his presence working through us. So I'll go back to the soccer camp, and I'll share some stories from the soccer camp to illustrate the power of God's presence. This next picture is a picture of Kibeg. He's number 12. And volunteer Luke with the glasses. Luke was a high school graduate uh, serving with us. And, and Kibeg uh, is now in sixth grade. When I came to the home, he was one years old. Uh, he was the youngest in the home, along with another boy named Chungo. And um, so I held them as babies and, and you know, look, looked after them through those early years. And now he's sixth grade, about to graduate from elementary school. And uh, I feel old. Um, but Kibeg is a sweet kid. I, I love this boy. Uh, he's, he's a lot of fun to be with, but he has his scars. He has his issues. And now and then, rebellion comes out, attitude comes out. Um, he, he can fight you know, and, and talk back with his dorm parents or, or just get upset and, and, and fight with the other boys. And uh, he missed the first soccer camp when he was in third grade. He missed it because of discipline, uh, because of his poor attitude and, and, and disobedience. Uh, but he came to this camp, and the volunteers loved him. Volunteers literally loved him and reached out to him, but they really cared for him, and they noticed how he was responding. And volunteers would share, like, there is something so special about this boy. He is so sweet. Oh, he, he's just such a joy to be around. And I would tell them, well, actually, out of all my elementary school boys, he's the toughest. He's the toughest. And they would be, no way. They would be blown away. But you know, it was the love of these volunteers being poured out unto him that that darkness that Kibeg was... Light was dawning. And that Grand Canyon of who Kibek really is, what a mighty man he is meant to be, made in God's image, for God's glory, was starting to be revealed through these camps, through the presence of God at these camps. And they were seeing him for who he truly is. And I'm going to read to you uh, what Luke emailed me after the camp. He just wrote uh, his little reflection on the camp. And this is what he said. In the middle of the camp, Kibek wanted to know why all the volunteers were here for no pay, no reward, and why I loved hugging him. <laughs> and I told him it's because we all loved him so much. And that Jesus taught us to go out and love people. Jesus loved us first and died in doing so. And we want to share that love with the world. Throughout the camp, I constantly focused on the idea that every person on earth was God's flawless creation. That was loved by the most powerful being in the universe. And whenever the kids fought, I would go to them. And instead of disciplining them, I told them that they were creations of God. Loved and mighty with the power of God lingering in their bodies. Not many of the kids had great effects, but Kibek definitely had the effect. After intensively talking about Jesus' love for him, he was speechless. Right there, he was shocked. He told me he had never heard about love. He, he lived in a jungle, which only the strongest survived. He thought he was abandoned, abandoned by his own parents, abandoned by so many people that had said they had come to help him. I told him, yes, that may be true, but you have many more people in this world that pray for you and love you. Because God told us to, and he loves you so much. I came here to volunteer and coach you because Jesus loved me. I told him about my testimony as well, how I was neglected by my parents and often beat up. I told him about all the things in my life that had brought me almost to death, and then how Jesus' love shocked me. 
I bared it all in that moment, fully sure that this was the moment that Jesus had set up to change a boy's life. Right there, he stared into the air for 30 solid seconds. Then after a long silence, he asked, can you tell me more about God and his love? And so we went on, continually talking until lunch was ready, and I told him to go eat. This kid was the one I was able to minister to most, talk about God's love and how he was loved beyond what he could imagine, and it struck his heart. Especially orphans are sensitive to that kind of stuff. I think there was something very special about that moment. We had that deep connection, and I could sense the Holy Spirit moving right there. It's the power of God's presence. After the camp, I was driving Quebec home, uh, and I asked him, who was his favorite volunteer? And he said, Luke. Luke was his favorite volunteer. And uh, I knew why, because I had seen how intentional Luke was in loving Quebec and how God's presence was working in this boy. You see, at our first camp, we only had a few volunteers, and they weren't that well trained, and we prayed, and, and we did our best, um, but love only broke through so much. But we noticed the more volunteers we got and the more prayer that we got, the more God's presence was released in these camps. So now at these camps, we try and get a one-to-one ratio of volunteers and kids so that every kid is being looked after. Every kid is getting a word of affirmation and a hug and, and encouragement, and when the kids get there, the presence of God is so thick they don't have any moment to be able to argue or, or, or be distant or, or run off. And that love, it just, it's like a furnace. It gets so deep, it melts their cold hearts, and they're smiling right away. Even kids who had never been at the camp before, didn't know anything about it. It's just a different atmosphere, and they love it. They absolutely love it. And I'm going to show you some pictures of other boys. These are the other toughest boys at the camp. These are the kids that we were warned of by the children's homes. Watch out for this boy. You might have to send him back. Look at these smiles. Look at these kids. He had a broken arm. He had to be at the camp, though. These are kids from different homes hugging each other, holding each other. That's my favorite picture. Sixth grader and a third grader. And, uh, you know, these, these kids, they, they don't even know each other. They come to the camp. God's presence is so strong. They feel family for the first time. And they'll ask. And we've had boys ask. The volunteers at this camp are different than any camp or school I've ever been to. Why, why is that? They pick it up, these orphans. They notice a difference, and it's not that the volunteers are perfect. We have different volunteers every year. It's the power of God's presence working through these volunteers. And the presence is so thick in these camps that these kids, even though they feel like orphans and they fight with the other kids from their own home, they come and suddenly they feel family. And I see the same kids were at the home. They would curse each other and fight, suddenly getting water for each other, suddenly caring for each other, suddenly being the Grand Canyon that they were meant to be. And it's so beautiful. So I want to encourage you, church, seek God's presence. Abide in Him. He loves you so much. He died on the cross for you. He sent you His Holy Spirit to live within you. Many people in the church, they know God the Father and they know Jesus Christ, but that's only two-thirds of who God is. If I only knew two-thirds of sky, I wouldn't really know her. God wants you to know Him completely. Welcome his Holy Spirit when you pray, when you read the word. Ask God for his presence and you will begin to feel him. Soon you'll, you'll feel even in the physical, his presence come and enjoy him. Let him transform you. Let him transform your family. Let him transform your community, your workplace. He is able to do it. 
His presence can change the world. And uh, I also want to say, uh, before I close in prayer, that I've been a missionary now for over 10 years. And it's the prayers of so many in this church that have sustained me. When I first went to Korea in 2005, I only had a few prayer supporters in this church praying for me. And I would be tested. I didn't know Korean. I would, I would have so much difficulty, and I'd want to give up. But then I could feel God's presence. And I knew it was the prayers of people here in America praying for me. They were releasing God's presence in prayer. And I would find the strength to carry on. And now it's not just me that needs prayer. It's all these kids and Oak Tree Project and Jerusalem Ministry and, and what God is doing and even our heart for North Korea. There is so much of a need for prayer. And so if you would like to be a prayer supporter, I have a sign-up sheet in the foyer. You go out the door and it's right on your left. And you can write down your name and your email. And I send out an email usually every other week with a short story from, from the home, from the orphanage, or, or from what God is doing in Korea with a few prayer requests. We would greatly appreciate that. Uh, if you want more information about the ministries, just Google Jerusalem Ministry or Google Oak Tree Project. We have separate websites for those as well. Uh, let me go ahead and close us in prayer. God, we thank you so much for the power of your light. God, we thank you that although we're just dust, Lord, just like the Grand Canyon, we're just dust. When your light shines upon us, God, we become one of the wonders of this world. We become people that inspire nations, that change people's hearts. It's your presence, God, that we desire. And Father, I just pray that you release your light into the journey, into this church, and into this community, God. The light of your presence that you just shine so brightly upon us and through us, God, that every habitual sin, every area of, of failure or of fear, every area of stress and concern, God, that you will just invade with your presence and release your peace. Just release, Lord, the knowledge of, of your love and of your name that your love never fails. And you will not fail us. And that you make all things new. That by you we are truly new creations. And by you we are able to love. And we are able to release that presence, your presence, into those around us, God. So, Father, I just release that hope. I release the intimacy of your Holy Spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.